Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Packy McCormick, who is the creator of the Not Boring newsletter. I will dive into some of his story, which is him leaving his job in 2019 and planning to start an in-person community, including buying a clubhouse. Luckily, he didn't take too much action on that before the pandemic hit, and he decided to shift his focus to writing, and he's built a pretty impressive following, writing about startups and businesses and strategy and having a ton of fun with it. I think that's what really resonates with me, and it's exciting to see somebody doing something they're enjoying. We'll also talk about a piece he wrote last week on the future of work and why he thinks the employee will decide the future. So today I'm talking with Packy McCormick, who is a solopreneur, I would say, and left his job last year uh, to start a in-person community company. So not pandemic friendly. But we're going to dive into that shift, uh, what he's working on now, and we're going to dive into a piece I resonated with that you wrote last week about the future of work. Uh, so welcome to Reimagine Work, Packy. Good to be here. I'm a huge fan of your writing as well, and you're living this, so I'm excited to talk about it. I stumbled across your writing early, I think mid-2019 after you started publishing online. And I think the thing that jumped out at me is you seem to be having fun with it. I find a lot of people aren't. They either feel like they have to do writing online or they're trying to like surface things that they want to be excited about. But like yours just jumps out for the pack uh, early. And I think you're still doing it, which was awesome. Uh, Where does that come from? (laughs) 
Yeah. So, I mean, I had no, you know, no reason to write really other than um, I was at a company called Breather uh, for six years. So it's a long time and wanted to kind of like, you know, start using my brain in, in a different way. And so took this writing course and, you know, it wasn't a mandatory thing. It wasn't homework. I love reading, obviously, on my own. I didn't love reading when it was homework, et cetera. I think that's a, a common theme. But this was just a fun thing that I got to do on the side and a good way to kind of explore things that, I was interested in and, and kind of organized my thoughts on paper. And I do think that, you know, some essays I'd wrote in the beginning were fun and, and I had fun with, and some were like, I think me trying to sound smarter than I actually am, or like, you know, put on airs or find a topic that maybe like, you know, I could try to become an actor, you know, all the, all the stuff that I think people do when they start writing. And I think I got to a certain point, particularly over the past, call it eight months since I've started writing full time where you know, like my only differentiation really, if I'm writing about business strategy and finance is that I'm going to be having more fun than people. And I'm going to be taking it less seriously. Like I'm not smarter than Ben Thompson. There's plenty of people who have spent the past, you know, multiple decades in finance who are better there. But I think if you can kind of infuse the the fun and approachability to the topics and explore the things that I'm passionate about, then hopefully that comes through. Well, there's a certain aspect too of writing in which you you kind of step into that unknown and you force yourself to level up and get smarter. I think for me, what I realized when I read it right is, oh crap, I don't actually know anything about this topic. Now I'm going to spend like five to 10 hours actually going deep on that. And that, that's also one of the challenges of writing too. It's challenge and opportunity there, right? Like this is, I, I've always been obsessed with, and I think that that's, you know, the, we can talk about the in-person community, but kind of continued learning and why learning has to stop and why you have to kind of find one track where you're in a job and then you learn more and more and more and more specific things within that job or that industry. And I hated that. Uh, and so I think for me, like learning, it, it, writing is every week, I get to write about something that like very often I'm a noob on and I have to, be able to like, you know, within the course of three or four days, by the time I hit send on Monday, have to be able to write at a level that's both like, I understand it well enough to explain to people who've never heard about it and also not embarrass myself to people who are in the industry. And so like, it just forces you to go deep and kind of learn and, and figure out what people are saying. Yeah. How do you handle that? I think I've been a bit afraid of growing too fast with my newsletter. I've been writing pretty consistently in it in two years and as the numbers get bigger, I get a little more nervous. I write about things that I am not fully an expert in. And I try to push, do that to push myself and grow and stay curious and stay energized. But at the same time, you could, you have this sense that, oh, do I really know what I'm saying? Like, it, it must be pretty scary. I think yours has grown pretty fast over the last yeah. six months. How do you deal with that? To me, honestly, it was scarier at, 20 people, you know, scary, 20 people, scary at hundred people doing the first few posts where I was like, guys, like take, take a couple of hours, or, you know, take, take half an hour and read what I have to say on this topic. And, you know, then it was scarier because I knew each one of the faces of the people who were reading the newsletter. Whereas now I think, you know, like the, the audience is bigger and it's just been enough weeks of forcing myself to get over the fear and hit send that it's just become kind of, you know, a habit a little bit and something that's less scary every week. Still, I'm scared that like I'm exploring a new industry and people who are actually in the industry are going to be like, this is either, you know, an amateur hour or 
wrong or, you know, totally missing the main point or whatever. But I think just doing it enough times and realizing that even when it's not perfect, nobody really cares has been, has been helpful for me. I think people see you doing it in good faith too. And the thing a lot of people don't see when you publish and create online is 98% of the feedback I get back is like, wow, this was so cool. This made me think it's the emails you receive on the, the other side that aren't as legible to people that don't create online. That that's really the feedback cycle that kept me going. And I, I definitely resonate with, uh, it being a lot weirder to send to a hundred people in crickets, right? It's like, Oh shit. Totally. Yeah. It's like, what am I doing here? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely a part of it. I think because I've been public about growing it and the process and whatever, from the time that I started writing it, it builds, it's building fast, but it builds slowly enough that like everyone can still see that I'm like that idiot who was just trying to figure something out eight months ago. And so like, there's no expectations that this is going to be a perfect thing uh, because I think it's just been like such an open process the whole time. Last February, I, I was looking back at my emails. I exchanged a few emails with you. This was early February and this looks so ridiculous now. Uh, you were outlining your plans to build an in-person community by a clubhouse. This is like February 14th. Yep. <laughs> um, not a great year for in-person community. So how, no. how did, how was like February and March for you? That must've been a pretty wild time. Yeah. So I, I guess, rewind a little bit, uh, you know, for the past kind of, for most of 2019, I knew that I wanted to leave breather. I knew that I right. wanted to start my own thing. I was trying to figure out what that was. And I really used a lot of like the writing to explore what that was. And I, I wrote a four part series on uh, in-person communities and clubs and like this kind of burgeoning Soho for Soho House for X movement that was happening. And, you know, it kind of resonated with this thing that I've always wanted, which is this kind of like continued college atmosphere. And so what I tried to build was a combination of, you know, Soho House and college extracurriculars. So I was doing a debate club on the side, or we had uh, drinks, like drinks and philosophy papers, or like just like different, like kind of nerdy, small group things. And it was a really, really fun idea. And I loved like kind of nerding out on it. But I also think that I like talked myself into it being a good this. And so I think you can tell when there is like that natural kind of like pull and when you have to push it. And it really felt like, you know, I launched the community, thankfully launched the community first before uh, before going out and raising money or signing a lease on a space. And that was not how I had been thinking about it, but I talked to enough community people who said, please like start building the community first. Um, and I'd done all of that and it felt like, you know, particularly after COVID hit, I tried to bring it online a little bit. And I know you like you helped out with, yeah. with an event and I realized that because what I was trying to build was so broad in terms of the type of people and wasn't very niche. It's like the exact wrong thing that you want to build online. I still think you maybe could have pulled it off in person, but online, it's just not the way to build a community by going super, super broad. Um, and so when COVID, when it became clear that like COVID wasn't going away anytime soon, and that I didn't want to become an online community manager, it actually was a bit of a relief where I was like, you know, I would have been bullheaded about this. I had told enough people, I had written publicly about the fact that I was doing this, that I would have just like banged my head against the wall, you know, tried to find little reasons to convince myself that I was doing it right. But frankly, looking back on it, wasn't a great idea. I think it'd be a really fun thing to do 
now with an audience as a side thing or in the future, if I'm able to make you know enough money off of not boring the newsletter and, and all the surrounding things there. But as a startup, I think it would have been a ton of effort for a uh, pretty low payoff. Yeah, that's, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting how uh, the pandemic merged with the idea you're dealing with too, because you were able to test out a lot of things virtually. And I think a lot of the thinking around community now is kind of, okay, test it and try to build it online and then go offline, which is probably going to be pretty exciting for many types of communities post COVID in terms of how people are experimenting in new ways of living. I mean, this is essentially how I travel is connect with people online and find places to live and then go there. Um, And you wrote a pretty detailed piece, uh, Seniors. How do you, how do you say that? That's right. Seniors. Seniors about this idea of all these communities converging uh, in different parts of history. And you say you're pretty passionate about community building and happiness. So how, how are you thinking about that thread? Community is super important. I think when I started this journey, I didn't have an online community necessarily. Like I had my friends, I had my family, I had all of this. And I wasn't very deep in Twitter. Twitter actually really kind of scratches a lot of the itch for me yeah. in terms of having this community of people that, you know, some you have really, really light interactions with, some you're constantly engaging with. I'm sure that's how you found a lot of people that you kind of meet up with when you travel. Right. And so I think part of it was just like kind of not realizing the power of the community that I like already had the software for. And now, you know, by putting by broadcasting, you're able to just attract a bunch of people who also, you know, are interested in the same things. And so I think Twitter has filled that, that void for me in a pretty big, uh, pretty big way. I think like the really interesting question around seniors, like if this trend continues and if people do stay remote and connect online and better and better tools are built, kind of my entry point into that exploration was the question of like, great, we're all online now all of these senior, like, you know, the Renaissance or the Scottish Enlightenment or whatever, were these like very geographical things where for whatever reason, there was this magic that happened in certain times and places where there was an explosion of creativity and new ideas that other people in the future would build off of and uh, people interacting. Can you recreate that magic online? And I think so far we've seen like early signs that that absolutely I think you can when everybody's forced online and you take away the geographic constraint and you can find the five people in the world who are the most interested in that particular thing that that you're interested with and all like kind of the tangential pieces around it that make a seniors kind of magical. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see over time, like how that, how that sustains and how you can kind of, once you're allowed to go back to the real world and, and sometimes go to the office and whatever, like if that kind of takes some of the energy back away from the internet or if the internet kind of takes over from there. So I don't, I think nobody knows and we'll see what, what that ends up looking like. But I think for this like kind of year in time, it, it's been like the internet has been just this like magical community kind of almost in and of itself. Yeah. It's been pretty amazing. I think, I mean, even someone like you, you, me and you lived in New York. I lived there from 2015 to 2017. We never met. We yeah. probably should have met. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. but, and now it's so easy to find other people. I didn't know I needed people that like 
like the kind of people I want to connect with are essentially people that think it makes sense to spend 40 hours diving deep into a topic and then writing about it. Yeah. <laughs> Which when I think about the overlap with my friends in real life, it's not very many people. So it's really been a, uh, a nice place to meet these basically like Uber nerds who want to go super deep on different topics. I mean, like Twitter has what, 300 million uh, monthly active users or something like that. And your friend group, if you're super, super popular and define it loosely as like a hundred people. So like the odds of you finding those people are just so much higher in that, in that space. And so I think it'll be really interesting again to see like how digital and physical kind of continued to, to blur. Cause I do still think there's a ton of magic in the in-person interactions, but to your point earlier, finding like using the internet as the top of funnel and then in person as kind of bottom of funnel is a really interesting way of thinking about it. So let's talk about the newsletter and then dive into some of the future of work. So you're writing a different newsletter than you were uh, six months ago. You were writing to your first thing was kind of per my last email. It was more of like life updates. And now you're going like super deep across a wide range of topics to probably, I don't know, 20 times the audience you were six months ago. 40 or 50 Um, at this point. Yeah, it's crazy. uh, Talk to me about that transition and how you've kind of thought of yourself as what you're working on and your path and how you define as a writer and thinking about all of that. I think I'll start with the second question first in terms of like how I think about it. And the fun of this is that I'm not really. Um, and I'm really just like every week. So kind of like up to my eyeballs and trying to figure out a new topic and just get something that I feel happy with out the door that there actually has not been nearly as much kind of long-term thinking or planning as I've ever done. It's less than I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but kind of rewinding. So yeah, when the club shut down, I realized I had this newsletter on the side, uh, you know, this per my last email that had about 500 people. I was sending links and listens and uh, maybe sometimes would write a deeper essay. And then I, I had more time during a pandemic when I realized like, look, I'm probably shutting this thing down. And at the very least, if I'm not shutting this thing down, it will certainly benefit from having a wider audience on the newsletter. So let me just focus on the newsletter. And around that time is when I realized like, you know, the thing that I really love digging into is tech, business strategy, finance, and like these things that I thought were way too well covered. And so I spent the first year of writing, trying to avoid them and find a unique angle. But I think like it's super, super important if I'm going to be writing, you know, 60 hours a week to find things that I'm actually super passionate about. Writing does attract a bunch of people to you, right? Like just putting your thoughts out there, writing videos, podcasts, whatever, attract people to you who are interested in the things that you're writing about. And so like you want to, what you write about defines who you're going to be spending a lot of time interacting with and talking to. So like it better be something that you're really interested in or those conversations are going to be painful. Um, and so finally just realized like, what if I infuse pop culture into all of that stuff? And like, you know, talk about the Gartner hype cycle through the lens of the movie, She's All That, or uh, creative destruction through the lens of the Mickey Mouse Club. And so like, I really like forced myself, every one of the essays that I wrote early after I changed the name to Not Boring, to blend like kind of some concept in economics or finance or strategy with some like very just like on the nose pop culture thing. 
And then I think over time, as I, as it's grown and as like I realized I was spending half as much time thinking about what movie this topic might make sense for, I've dropped you know the exact like direct pop culture reference, but tried to keep the spirit of what I'm writing about. And so that ends up being these like really, really big, fascinating companies or trends on Mondays and then really small kind of like early stage stuff, uh, either companies that we're investing in. We can talk about the the syndicate because I think that's a fun kind of community type thing uh, that we're doing or, you know, even sponsored posts. And I think I've been like fairly nakedly commercial and open about the fact that like, this is what I'm doing. So I need to make money on this. And so that's given me a lot of freedom, I think, to try new formats that are me making money, writing about things that I'm really excited about writing about anyway. Yeah. How have you thought about that? And it seems like you're really going out there on your own, like getting advertisers or I don't know if people are reaching out to you, but a lot yeah. of people think, okay, how can I actually monetize this? How have you tried to uh, approach that uh, putting on like a business hat? So my plan was grow from, you know, the 500 people that I was at in, in April to, you know, hopefully a thousand by the end of the year. Then I updated it to like 5,000 people by the end of the year. And I was like, when that happens, you know, I'll think about monetization then. And by monetization, like I drank the Substack Kool-Aid and I was like, I'm definitely doing, you know, paid subscriptions. And so hopefully if 10% of my 5,000 person audience converts at $8, I'll be making $4,000 a month. And like, you know, at least that covers rent. And then I can, you know, have that going on the side and I can figure out what I want to do with my life. Uh, It grew faster than I expected. And I realized that I loved the growth, not just because like it's fun, but it also, I think, creates more opportunities and more surface area on the writing. And I do spend so many hours that I like to kind of amortize that over a bigger audience. So realize that I didn't want to close that off by going paid. So advertising is kind of the next model uh, there. I had put it out there that I was maybe like to a couple people thinking about doing it. Somebody asked me for my ad deck or my sponsor deck. I didn't have one. So I did a survey of the audience. Like the results were perfect, kind of like the exact type of people that, you know, a SaaS or finance company would want to target, put together an ad deck uh, to send to this one person who had asked for it. And then I was like, yeah, I already have this thing. Like, let me just put it on Twitter. And so I did a Twitter thread and literally the first two months of sponsors all came from that, that thread. And then it's come from either referrals or readers reaching out and asking if they can advertise since then. And are you doing affiliate fees or do you pay a set amount per subscriber? Yeah. So it's somewhere I've done both, frankly. Like, so I've done mostly for just like a top level sponsorship. It's just been, here's my rate for this month based on the number of subscribers. I frankly pulled the first rate out of thin air. Um, you know, I, I realized that I'm doing something like a little bit different that I think people are used to on the newsletter. Like I'm doing these in-depth analyses that people really like want to need to want to like invest time in to get through. And so it's very different than if I had like a hundred thousand person audience of people who were like not at all uh, committed. So I would lose if I tried to do kind of CPMs. And so I just picked a number and then was like, oh, well, you know, I grew 40% this month. So my rates 40% higher now. I don't know. And it's worked so far. Um, and then sometimes I'll do CPA. So a couple of times I've done company deep dives uh, on two that I've done CPA on our main street, which finds tax credits for companies and then gives them free money. So like that was a no brainer CPA deal. Cause I was like, I don't know who in my audience wouldn't sign up for this. Like they literally just send you a check of money that the government gives you. Um, and then another one is a company called pipe and they like, can turn your recurring revenue into an upfront payment and you can raise better capital for your business and all of that. And so if it like really, really, uh, I think aligns and is something that 
feels like my audience is like absolutely going to go for and the math works out, I'm happy to take a risk on that. Typically though, you know, just because I have a kid and a wife and like want to make money, typically I just charge a set rate for the, for the sponsorship. I wanted to ask you about that too. You had a kid during the pandemic. Uh, I think our generation, the millennials have kind of woken up and been like, oh, maybe it's time to start our lives and buy houses and move out of these cramped apartments and have children. (laughs) It's pretty amazing how many of my friends have uh, taken some pretty uh, major life uh, shifts in the last 12 months. But how has that impact how you're thinking about um, your work, how you spend your time, um, just like everything you write about and talk about. Yeah. I don't know. It's been, it's been like the absolute best thing in the whole world. And I know everybody says that, but like just could not be happier being a dad and, and getting to spend time with him. Like certainly way more distracting. Cause like after this call, normally I just like put on a song and keep writing and I want to go hang out with him if he's awake. And so like my schedule is choppier and I'm like squeezing it in in different places and my sleep is horrible. And so like, I need to caffeinate myself more than usual in the morning to get going and all of that. But it's just like absolutely the the greatest thing in the world. I think one of the things that it made me realize is that like humans have been around for a very, very, very long time. We've lived in small apartments and cities away from our families for a very short, like maybe couple century, if you're being generous window. And you know now we're living for a couple months in my in-laws' house. I'm in their basement right now, and you can see like it's just so nice to be able to be with and near family. Like my parents are an hour away; they come often. We were with them for Thanksgiving, and just being able to kind of like raise the kid collectively, and it it makes it seem like almost barbaric that like that you would go back to work within a week or that you wouldn't be near your family or any of those things. So I think it's kind of opened my eyes to like why it's like a little bit of like uh family unit Lindy effect where like if that type existed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, like there's a good reason for it um, beyond just like we didn't have the option to move to cities before. So I don't know, that's like a broader thing, but generally it's, it's been about finding like ways to squeeze it in, but totally, totally worth it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, uh, connects to the future of work. And I've, I've written a lot about this. People don't realize how much this has shifted. Essentially, we have a bifurcated economy where we've increased low-wage jobs and increased high-wage jobs. The high-wage jobs are uh, awesome. And there's actually been more people making more money than ever before. And the downside of that is it's basically required people to move to high-cost cities. And for the first time ever, those people are moving to high cost cities and not leaving. And we'll see what the pandemic does to that shift. But essentially, that's broken the connection to family and starting families and buying houses and this traditional um, narrative that's existed. Totally. Um, And by the way, like I love cities. And I think, you know, in a few months, we're probably moving back to New York, but we're doing it kind of with the choice of, you know, do we live in in New York or somewhere else? And do I have to get on the subway five days a week, twice a day and do that whole thing? Like not going to do that again. So it's an interesting thing that even with a choice, you might make the same choice again, but just having that choice is a really nice thing. 
Yeah. And that was part of your hypothesis with the future of work piece you wrote. You said people will move more often. And one of the ways you saw that was through companies like Nextdoor, which lower the transaction costs and friction to moving and selling a house, right? Uh, I think remote work, I've seen a lot of people with full-time jobs experiment with living in different places. Uh, how, do, how do you see that uh, playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be a massive one. There's like the anecdotal stuff about everybody and their brother moving to Austin or moving to different places in the country. There's that idea that I think everybody has wanted to live on a commune with their friends forever, and it's just never been feasible before. So I would imagine like you'll start to see things like that happen more often a lot is going to stay the same. People have friend networks in cities and they have, you know, they've chosen cities because maybe it's close to their family. Like, you know, we'd love to try out Austin, but both of our families are on the East coast. So we're going to stay on the East coast. So there's going to be plenty that stays very much the same, but I think, you know, the big kind of, I think thesis of the piece that I wrote was that one employees will just have more choice now. And so employers think the decision to go back to work or not is up to them. And like maybe in the very, very, very short term it is, although I think people will drop off like the day that that happens. And I've talked to plenty of friends for whom that's the case. Um, But I think over time, like it just makes the labor market more of an actual market than it has been in the past. And, you know, the best, I wrote something that like some people maybe thought was like a little bit too much, which is the best employee, best employees will never want to go back to a five day uh, work week in an office again. And I think that's true in a lot of cases, but it's more that like a company is never going to be able to attract all of the top employees again, if they're five days a week in an office. And so like that talent density over time will just like kind of slowly and slowly and slowly decrease. So it, it's incumbent upon companies to really figure out how to get good at remote work. Cause I think as we talked about the first time we talked on a zoom call, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, like you can do remote work really shitty. Like right now, the way that a lot of yeah. people do remote work isn't good, <laughs> but I think the companies that are able to figure out how to do it well and how right. to mix the in-person stuff and the remote stuff, like those companies are going to be at such a massive advantage because they're going to be able to pull talent from anywhere and they'll be able to attract people with the, you know, the offer of flexibility with some structure that people do crave still. Yeah. I was calling this the basically free strategic option uh, that companies were taking in April. I I was basically saying that I thought it was a no brainer in like April or May to go fully remote indefinitely because if you're looking at strategy, strategy is basically probability. And I was looking at, you can have a certain outcome of going fully remote, or you can have an uncertain outcome of not knowing what the future looks like and muddling through. Um, Now the certain outcome of shifting to remote may actually be costly and you may be able to quantify that, but it's actually going to set you up for future uh, competitiveness and all these things. Totally. And it, yeah, it doesn't mean that you can't go back to the office, right? Like it means that you're telling your employees that they can work remotely forever if they'd like to. And you can also change that at some point in the future. But I think it's like, you know, I wrote about the fact that Stripe, you know, they didn't say everyone's remote for the, till the end of time. They said, we have five hubs that are of equal importance to each other, one of which is remote. And it's just like kind of signals a dedication to making that experience on par or better than, you know, or at least kind of different uh, and equal to the in-person experience. Yeah, and I I think you're generally right about um, talented employees uh, 
I've seen this trickling out over the past few years. Uh, the kind of people that normally maybe 10, 15 years ago would be climbing the ladder and staying within a company are opting out and increasing rates. Yep. And I've seen this go early and, and earlier. I've talked to a lot of Gen Z people who are like not even taking that first entry level job. Me and you totally. both started in consulting and investment banking. And we did, you, you did 10 years. I think I did 10 years in the corporate world and bounced out. People are bouncing out now in five years. People are bouncing out in two years. Uh, and these are people who would traditionally be very successful in organizations. And I feel this on my end too, like companies try to hire me and I'm just not interested. There's really good, I could make a lot more money through freelancing, but last year they were trying to hire me five days on site for three months, not interested. I can't imagine going back to a job where I have to one <laughs> work for somebody and two go to an office every day. Like it just seems like once you've had a taste of the other side, it seems like a crazy, just like constriction of optionality that, that uh, that's been the biggest thing. Cause I've talked to companies during this process about maybe joining full time. And each time like, man, I have all of this optionality. And then it just goes like this. So I think we probably will also see these like more liquid implement options that are somewhere between being a right. full-time employee that feel a little more permanent, but they're not like totally optionality limiting. But yeah, to me, I, I can't, like, it just seems like infinite upside kind of just constricted by going in-house somewhere. And do you have explicit conversations with your wife about, okay, I'm actually willing to give up. Uh, I'm actually willing to dramatically lower my costs of living or the amount I could potentially make for this freedom. Do you guys talk about that? Cause I talk about this a lot with my wife in terms of like what actually makes our life awesome and how do we keep some of this freedom that we really love? A hundred percent. I mean, she's been, I, I can't, I, I'm so incredibly lucky that she's been down with this whole thing, right? Like from wanting to start the company to then being like, ah, you know what, I'm not gonna do the company. I'm gonna write this free newsletter then to like having months of building it. And like, there are clear signs of progress, but that ultimately resulted in $0. Uh, and so she's been amazing there. And I think like the the goal was, like, I was always like, look, this is a math problem. Like you get to a certain size and then you can monetize in a certain way. So like, please just trust me here. Um, but I, I'm finding now that like, I don't think I'm gonna have to give up you know, it, it was a year to get here of like no money, but I don't think I'm going to have to really make a sacrifice in terms of, you know, the income level. It'll be less predictable and all of that. And I'm going to be a terrible candidate to like go out and get a mortgage somewhere. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I think like the upside potential is actually even better here. So she's been really comfortable with the risk, understanding that like the payoff could be greater too. And like most importantly, if she has to go back to the office or go back to work, like I'll be here to get to hang out with our son all the time. So, you know, it's, it's a really nice kind of set of trade-offs. I've kind of taken the route to work less and purposefully keep my income lower, but yeah. it also gives me space to create all these random bets that I'm actually working less, enjoying life more. 
I feel like I'm becoming a better person because just working full time was just edging out. It was, it had this like base level of anxiety and frustration I had. Um, plus I'm working on these things I'm actually excited about that might pay off in a dramatic way. It kind of feels like I'm on cheap mode. And totally. I, I talk to a lot of people about taking the leap and they look at, well, it, I won't be able to make a lot, but they're looking at it the wrong way. Uh, they're not seeing that the hardest part is actually just the psychological shift of saying, oh, I'm making less, but I'm not a worse person. Uh, but I'm learning all these kind of like life mode skills that will pay off. Plus there's all this potential upside. Yeah. That part's the, the hard part to appreciate. And it was for me as well. I was like, look, I'm going to try something that probably means that I'm going to be making a lot less money for a very long time. And then it got to a spot where I, I think I'll be like kind of a parody or kind of like, you know, certain weeks am at parody way more quickly than I expected. And now I can't like, I can't imagine like the annual salary review conversation is like my chance to start making more money. Whereas like this week, every time somebody subscribes, there's like a little bit more earning potential. So it's just a very, like it is a totally uncomfortable shift to make. But once you're in it, like it also looks silly the other way too, where you're like, I don't know, I hope like my boss likes me this year uh, and I'm able to get that 5% raise that I'm, that I'm due. What, what were some of those kind of like inner because a lot of people just don't understand the inner game challenges of making this shift. I mean, I had many, I still have many moments when I'm like, well, I'm, I'm an idiot. All these people are making more money in my former profession. Am, am I just a fool doing this? Um, what, what were some of those conversations you had with yourself in the first year? Yeah. It goes back further than that, right? Like when I was, I remember being like, eight years old and being in the backseat of the car and telling my parents that my goal was to be the richest person in the world. And then like, you know, spent a lot of time towards that and like went into finance and all that. And then I realized while I was in finance that I didn't like it nearly as much as the other people who were in it. And I wasn't willing to like sacrifice nearly as much. And by the way, they were actually just like naturally better at it than I was too. So I was like, man, I could make a lot of money and like get increasingly comfortable doing it this way, but I'm not going to win this game. So like, why not go try something that I think I can win? And so I joined a startup because that, you know, requires a, a more generalist skill set, which I think I possess. And so did that whole thing. And then I was like, you know what? I want to start something and that's going to be lower risk and higher upside. Chances are I'm not going to be the richest person in the world by doing, you know, particularly that uh, in-person social club idea. But, um, and then going to this and being like, I don't know, this is just like what I've told my wife for a while that if I had infinite time and money, I just want to get paid to, or just uh, not even get paid to just read and write. And so like, if I can do this and figure out how to build a business off of it, like that would be amazing. And we're in this weird time. where like, we're living with my in-laws and not paying rent. So like, if you can't figure out, like if I can't figure out how to do this now, and if this isn't the perfect opportunity for this, like it's just never happening. So let me, let me give this a shot. And then like now I've come weirdly come back to like, this world of finance and I'm writing about, you know, companies and investing and all of that kind of stuff from this like totally different route yeah. that does make me feel super silly compared to the people who are actually like in finance every day and I'm coming in like doing memes and stuff. But it is funny that like it's taken me this long to get back to that like original kind of passion for it, but from a different angle. I I think within the next five years, we'll see some like JP Morgan or Goldman report with memes in it. They'll probably be using your charts. 100%. 
I loved your future of work piece because the takeaway for me, the headline was like the worker decides. I think that's right. I, I think it may be, I think the biggest hurdle with that is people realizing they have that power, right? And I think a lot of people have woken up to the fact that they do have this power. And it sounds like Packy is not uh, for hire. <laughs> Packy is, yeah, I, I, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. I think if Stripe was like, you can do whatever job you want for us and make your own role, or like, you know, some dream role that like Patio 11 has, like maybe I would do that. I think that's the only job I can think of that I would actually go do. Uh, yeah, I mean, Stripe Stripe as a company is just like blows my mind. It's like, oh my God, this this company is basically going to be the operating system for the world. It'd be cool to be a part of that and get to see from the inside of what that looks like because I think it'll be that you know transformational. But otherwise, yeah, not for not for hire. What are you thinking about for twenty twenty one? What is Every January 1st, and I used to have free access to breather spaces that no longer do, so I'll need to find a new space for it. But I would lock myself in a breather space for you know five or six hours, reflect on kind of the past year, and then set goals for the next year. Right now, I feel really good not having goals. And you know, there's been enough serendipitous things happening that I'm comfortable without setting those, those goals. Um, and I've also given myself kind of like till my son is sleeping through the night to like really put brain power towards if that happens by January 1st, then hopefully I'll spend that day and like really think about what I want this to become in the next year. Like I'd love to have more people involved in a loose kind of association type of way, not, you know, formal, formal structure, most likely for a little while. Uh, I'd love to kind of go deeper on, on the investing side. I have this angel investing syndicate that I think we can do a whole lot more with. Um, but otherwise, like, I don't know, I'm having such a fun time just exploring and seeing where it goes that I'm going to keep it loose. That's awesome. I, I mean, I call it the pathless path. Uh, yeah. And I think it's probably the most fun way to orient because things can change and you can kind of jump on opportunities as they emerge. But the hardest thing is just developing a capacity for dealing with that uncertainty. It sounds like for you, you take a similar approach to I do, which is that the thing I love most to do right now is actually write. So I kind of orient around, okay, if I can wake up and write at least some every day, that will kind of lead me to things in which totally. I don't know where it will lead me, but that's kind of what matters to me is writing become that for you as well. It's somewhere between that and like, it is my favorite thing to do. And it's also like now, like I need to, yeah. get something out because on Monday I've told people that I'm getting something out. Um, and you know, I really want to, but there's like days when it's absolutely miserable because I don't know what I'm going to be writing about and whatever. And then once I pick a top topic and lock in and get in the zone, then it's like the most fun thing in the world. And I'd be happy to spend every waking hour, you know, either with, with my son and my wife or in the basement writing. That's awesome. So, Appreciate the uh, insights. I'm, I'm excited to continue following your journey and uh, reading reading the newsletter. I uh, am just rooting for you. So keep up the good work. Thank you. And likewise, I mean, you were you were at the right place, the right time, ready for all of this. Like, you know, you're gonna you're the expert at this thing that everybody's <laughs> gonna be trying to figure out. So very cool talking to you about it.
Thanks for listening to Reimagine Work. I'm having a ton of fun doing this podcast. One friend even reached out and said it's like a really professional coffee chat conversation from business school. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'm going to put that one in the positive column for now. If you have feedback for me similar to that, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me a note, reach out, message me on Twitter. And if you want to support the podcast, you know how to do it. Go to iTunes. You can give it a rating. You can share it with a friend. And if you want to offer a financial contribution or gift, you can do that in the link in the podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good week. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.